Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Dan Drayson is a U.S. media producer and documentary filmmaker. As a child, he experienced many precognitive dreams, which stimulated his early interest in paranormal phenomena. As an adult, Dan witnessed a number of UFO sightings and was one of the main on-site researchers of the infamous West Virginia Mothman incident in the late 1960s. Since 1993, Dan has been exploring and documenting various aspects of afterlife research. In 2017, he completed Calling Earth, a feature documentary about afterlife communication via modern electronics. He's currently writing a book, tentatively titled, What's This About an Afterlife? He has also been collaborating with a team of remarkable channelers who have just launched a unique website called cosmicvoices.network. If you're interested in compelling examples of our infinite existence, then this is a show you won't want to miss. Hi, Dan. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Tanya. So your film Calling Earth documents afterlife communication through modern electronics. The field itself is known as instrumental transcommunication. So what I want to know is what made you create this type of documentary? And if you can share some examples from the film of how people actually use the technology to communicate. Sure. Well, first of all, I had been interested for many years in things that sort of fall outside the box of accepted science. And when I first became aware of this whole field of instrumental transcommunication, uh, I actually was quite skeptical of it. But uh, the more I became familiar with it, the more impressed I was. I first encountered it back in the mid-1990s through a friend of mine, Mark Macy, who introduced me to uh, a book, first of all, that he had written at the time, about instrumental transcommunication. And he also exposed me to quite a number of examples of, of this practice. And um, I was so impressed that I began to do my own research. And back in the early 2000s, I uh, started to produce this documentary film. I worked for a period of years with co-producer Tim Coleman. We traveled around the United States, England, Scotland, and Spain documenting examples of, of this work, people who were experimenting with it, and also attending conferences, international conferences devoted to this subject. We collected a huge amount of footage, uh, which we actually created two films out of it. One was my film, Calling Earth. Uh, the other was a film about the skull experiment, which I also cover in one sequence in my film. And that was an experiment performed in England over a period of five years in the late 1990s, which I'll get into a little bit later. Okay, let's start with some examples, because I think people really want to understand what this means, uh, communicating with technology for people who have passed away. Well, I think the best way to approach this is to uh, go into the history of it and how it first came to our attention. Uh, back in the 1950s, when tape recorders first became consumer items, uh, people occasionally heard voices on their tapes that didn't belong there. At first, uh, these voices were dismissed, uh, mainly in the United States. These voices were dismissed as, well, the, the recorder is probably picking up some uh, radio station. And, and they were pretty much set aside in that way. 
But in Europe, it was a different story. A number of experimenters became aware of this phenomenon and really started to, to treat it scientifically. For example, a Swedish artist and filmmaker, Friedrich Jurgensen, who was very well known in his time, had just acquired a portable tape recorder and went out one night to record nocturnal bird sounds for a documentary he was producing. And when he played the tape back, in addition to the nocturnal bird sounds, he heard faint voices in the background discussing nocturnal bird sounds. So he figured, well, it was, it was quite a coincidence that some, some radio station nearby was discussing nocturnal bird sounds. Uh, but then, in a subsequent tape, he heard the voice of his deceased mother calling him by his childhood nickname. Now, this crossed the line for him, and so he, he kind of threw up his hands and said, wait a minute, this is something that we really need to investigate scientifically. So he started experimenting. And so what he would do is he would roll the tape, he would ask a question, and then let the tape roll for some time. Then he would ask another question, and so on. And when he played back the tape, he discovered that in the silent periods, there were faint voices that appeared to be answering his questions. So essentially, you're becoming the medium, right? Right. And you've got an objective recording as evidence of this. You're not relying on someone else to claim that, that there's been a communication. I hasten to add that there are many mediums who are of, of high integrity and reliable. But ITC has this property of being objective hard evidence. In Jurgensen's case, he collected many thousands of these voices uh, over his lifetime. He was then visited by a uh, Latvian psychologist by the name of Konstantin Raudeva. Raudeva heard uh, the voices that Jurgensen had been recording. He went off then and did his own experiments. And by the time he passed away in 1974, he had recorded, by some accounts, between 60 and 70,000 of these voices. He had published an LP record that provided examples of these for anyone who wanted to hear them. And after he passed, his colleagues on this side then began to receive messages from him. This went on for many years. His voice is still coming through to many people on their recording systems, as well as through mediums. So there is a, a huge body of evidence here that is very, very hard to sort of casually debunk. And uh, we, we can talk about the, the debunking and the skepticism a little later. But it's becoming increasingly difficult to kind of dismiss these sorts of experiences and phenomena uh, or make excuses for them. So in my opinion, and I think those who watch my film will agree, uh, this is a very robust and very evidential phenomenon that uh, throws into question a lot of what today's sciences pretty much uh, would dismiss. We can get into the whole question of science a little later as well. But our world is being faced now with many challenges to perception as usual, you might say. And this is one of the areas in which that seems to be happening. Can you tell me about the procedures that were taken for ruling out fraud? Do you have any examples? Uh, I'll give you two examples. In the film, one of the subjects that we visited was an Italian man named Marcello Bacci. And he has been receiving voices from the other side on an old uh, tube-type radio, um, a vintage 1940s, probably, radio. 
left. He's now retired, but he has had meetings at his center in Grosseto, Italy for years, uh, weekly meetings where people just come in and speak to their loved ones on the other side, who then speak back through his radio. You'll hear many examples of this and see many examples of this in my film. Obviously, there's a possibility of fraud in this kind of situation, but there's also a, a group of engineers in Italy who call themselves Il Laboratorio, who have come and very rigorously tested Bocci's situation. They've tested his equipment, they've measured possible radio signals in the environment, and so on, and they've given him a clean bill of health. Personally, I can vouch for another situation in which I performed my own experiments. Uh, toward the end of my film, you'll see a uh, Dutch fellow by the name of Robert Vandenbroek, who has been able to uh, manifest some quite incredible uh, effects, particularly in photographic equipment. Uh, you can hand him your camera, and he will just point it at the wall and rattle off a dozen exposures. And then in those pictures, you will very often see images of deceased people. And, and he's quite extraordinarily talented in this way. I visited him uh, about five years ago and set up my own experiments with him, where I brought my own camera. The camera did not have an internal memory. I brought a very special bunch of memory cards that had not been manufactured in at least five years, erased the cards in view of my own video camera, handed him the camera. He pointed the camera at a dark curtain in his living room and shot a series of, of images. And in those images, we found four pictures that shouldn't belong there. One was a sort of an outline of a human face. Another one was a almost an abstract picture of a swirl of energy with a human hand in the middle of it. And my favorites were two exposures that seemed to depict Friedrich Jorgensen in his later years. Now, Jorgensen, as you may remember, was the Swedish experimenter who first really nailed down ITC as a genuine phenomenon. So I was very impressed with this. Uh, I maintained very tight controls over uh, the handling of the camera, the processing of the image files, and so on. And as far as I'm concerned, Robert is the real deal. So is he then some sort of physical medium? Is Could that be what you call him? I think he would fall into that category. But he claims that he is not himself the source of these effects. He claims that he is merely the, um, you might say, the medium or the channel uh, through which the effects come. He says, well, there's this energy out there that's doing this through me. So I suppose we have to accept that uh, because we don't have within the scope of our current understanding of physics uh, any way to, to pigeonhole these kinds of things. Going back to the tight controls that you set up, I mean, that really demonstrates authenticity of this particular skill. Right. It does. It doesn't necessarily explain it, but explanation is not essential to understanding that a phenomenon actually exists. And this gets into some of the habits of uh, what we sometimes call a professional skeptics who say that because we don't have a, a plausible mechanism, therefore the phenomenon cannot exist. Well, that's really a, quite a silly argument because by that argument, the sun would never have given any light until we understood nuclear fusion. And there would have been no communicable diseases before we discovered microbes. 
Good point. Tell me what out of everything in your film, what surprised you the most? I think probably Robert Vandenbroek, the Dutch fellow. Uh, and it surprised me mainly because I was there. I set up the experiments and I experienced the results. There were things that happened off camera as well, where Robert was channeling certain folks that I knew. Uh, he told me things about my family that I had never, certainly never told him. And um, so I was, I was very, very impressed with him. I know. It's extraordinary. Dan, when I first saw the film, it was quite a few years ago at the beginning of my journey of discovery of mystical phenomena. And I just didn't know what to expect. Now, you stated before that the film is what you call a full meal, packed with a lot of information and examples of ITC in only an hour and a half. Now, honestly, my mind went back and forth between belief and disbelief. The way you present the evidence, especially with Robert, I mean, the whole film was just very surprising. Thank you. <laughs> it, it surprised me as well in the course of producing it. So how long did it take for you to create this film? It took almost 15 years. I started uh, around about 2000, 2001. I'd actually published various versions of it as it progressed. I think I added the final sequence to it about 2015, 2016. It was a long haul, and I wanted to be careful with this from start to finish. So I was as careful as possible with the editing, with the, the narration, not to overstate the case or make any claims that, that I couldn't demonstrate in the film. Well, you did this well. I want to talk about the terms paranormal versus normal, because I know you have some thoughts about that. Right. Well, there are actually uh, two separate definitions of that term, really. Uh, one of them is the scientific definition, which would be phenomena or experiences that can't be explained within the present framework of scientific discourse. And the other would be in the social realm. And that has to do with what's socially acknowledged and accepted. Uh, this ties in with various religious beliefs, both in terms of conventional religion and also the religious way in which science is often held. Uh, in other words, as the ultimate arbiter of reality. In the social realm, we actually don't know what's paranormal because we can't talk about it. I mean, how do we know that our next door neighbor is talking to their dead uncle twice a week? We, we don't know. You know, it's not a subject that people would feel comfortable with. So uh, my, my personal guess, and this actually goes back a number of years for me, uh, at one point I was very interested in the UFO question. And I would sometimes ask people, you know, have you ever had a UFO sighting? And many of them would start out by saying, oh, no, no, that's nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And then they'd pause a moment and they'd say, well, wait a minute, when I was 14 years old, and then it would all come tumbling out, you know, that they'd had this, this extraordinary experience that some of them more or less erased it from their memories. Most of them uh, kept their silence about it, but a surprising number of people did respond in this way. And so I wonder about uh, things like afterlife communication, how many people have had these kinds of experiences Perhaps they've never even told their own family members about it. That's been my experience. I noticed that when you open up the conversation to anyone anywhere, I mean, most people always have a story that they're willing to share, but you have to prompt them to get that conversation going. 
Right. And, you know, and in some cases, there may be instances of projection or rationalization. If someone experiences a coincidence of some kind and they attribute it to uh, an afterlife message. And these things really can't be proven one way or another. Uh, but in many cases, uh, the experiences are detailed enough or evidential enough that one can pretty well conclude that they were legitimate. I'll give you one example. My own partner, Jane, who passed in 2007, made her presence known in, in various ways for a period of time. And one of these was uh, one night I was thinking about her, preparing to go to bed. And as I'm thinking about her, the clock radio on the night table turns itself on. The, the clock glows like the sun, lights the whole room up. I've never seen it do that. And then three seconds later, shuts itself off. This happens then twice in the next several minutes. It had not happened before. It had not happened since. So to me personally, that's robust evidence. One of the uh, funny things about this perhaps is that Jane was quite a technophobe. So I don't think that she personally entered into the digital control systems of that clock radio and manipulated them in this way. Uh, we are told that there are beings, entities, who have the particular talent of bringing those things through across the veil, as it were, and making these manifestations possible in our physical world. That's a whole other conversation. But it's part of this body of knowledge that uh, we who are interested in these fields and experiment in these fields uh, are beginning to accept in one form or another. And uh, we don't necessarily have the language. We certainly don't have the physics we're beginning to develop a language. But it's tough because language itself is sometimes an obstacle. We know that language determines how we think, how we see reality. Different national languages have, one language will have words for things that another language doesn't. Uh, the languages of science, religion, and so forth all determine how we structure our sense of reality. So changing the language, evolving the language around this is an important aspect of extending our awareness into these uh, areas that have been either sort of inaccessible by default or actively taboo in the culture. It's very difficult to use precise language to describe the afterlife or this greater reality as you refer to it. Well, it's, sometimes it's valuable to use the right generalizations. When we don't have the specifics nailed down in our culture and in our sciences, I think it's important to kind of zero in on the right generalizations, the right metaphors that give us a flavor of what we're looking at and what we're exploring. And when we use a term like the greater reality, that implies a space that welcomes further exploration. We know that whatever reality we're looking at, there's always a greater one. That's the spirit of science. Science was never designed to arrive at final answers. Unlike religion, science was designed to evolve. I mean, if you look at the field of astronomy, for example, and you look at where it was even 10 years ago compared to where it is today, in certain areas, there's no resemblance. Theories are falling almost weekly as our ability to observe is improved. You know, we have incredible instruments, uh, orbiting telescopes, other kinds of instrumentation on the Earth. These are radically changing 
our notions of, of how the physical cosmos is constituted and how it behaves. So in my opinion, science is the right framework for exploring things like the afterlife or however you want to term it, the greater reality. Unfortunately, we tend to confuse science with materialism. Materialism has sort of weighed on, on the scientific enterprise with a heavy hand for about 400 years and has, in many people's minds, equated science with materialism and the idea that matter is all there is. But science is just a method of inquiry. It's a method of systematic inquiry, whereas materialism is essentially a belief system. Uh, in a way, it's a kind of a, a stealth religion, you might say, because it kind of dictates the limits of reality. But at this point, we're sort of being dragged kicking and screaming into a larger framework of reality and learning how to explore it scientifically, in other words, systematically. And uh, instrumental transcommunication is one area in which it's possible to do this according to the laws of and practices of conventional science which is one of its strengths. In the realm of conventional mediumship, there are many uh, evidential mediums who can pull out facts that are obviously inaccessible to them. One of them, uh, Suzanne Giesemann, is a uh, retired U.S. Navy commander. She was the highest ranking female officer in the U.S. Navy, and she's now an evidential medium with a great following. You can sit with her and she will tell you things about your family there's no way she could have known by any conventional means of research. So there are any number of ways of, of examining these things in an organized way. So what about the skeptics that use the materialist model to debunk all phenomena? I was going to say, don't get me started about skepticism. It's one of my favorite topics, actually, seriously. Um, well, you know, skepticism properly understood and properly practiced just means you know, not accepting things at face value, looking into them with curiosity, but without bias. Anything that's new uh, before it becomes generally accepted, it has to be tested in various ways. And as part of the scientific method, there's a testing phase. When something passes appropriate testing, we consider it as part of our reality. But in this area of uh, paranormal investigation, Unfortunately, skepticism has come to mean dismissal prior to investigation. At times, there's almost a religious fervor behind pigeonholing these experiences and phenomena as categorically impossible, therefore unworthy of investigation. That really constitutes scientific misconduct at the very least, and has resulted in a huge amount of misunderstanding and often a lot of personal grief. Uh, for example, people who have uh, had very profound near-death experiences, have often been subject to all kinds of medical and psychiatric abuse, clerical condemnation, ostracism by their own families, and so on. This went on quite a lot in the early days before we had actually even named the near-death experience. But even today, uh, this goes on. It's quite unfortunate. On the other hand, the growing availability of information in this field um, has really made a dent in it. Still, there's a hardcore of skeptics who try to find ways of explaining these things that only work if you ignore most of <laughs> most of the <laughs> reported phenomena. Uh, they try to put it in a box that, that's acceptable to what we think of as conventional science 
or what's acceptable within the, the walls of academia. But I think this is evolving now. As our understanding continues to evolve in these areas, I think the skeptics will begin to sound uh, sillier and sillier and will begin to stand down. Um, I think the best parallel here would be that of what's called the Copernican Revolution. Uh, in the days before Copernicus, it was assumed that the Earth was the center of the universe. I mean, what could be more obvious than that? Um, and uh, the whole idea that uh, the sun was the center of the local universe seemed absurd and ridiculous. But, you know, at a certain point, the observations were there, the math was there, and we shifted our point of view. Currently, we're going through a similar transition with respect to the nature of reality. In the view of uh, materialism, only that which is physical, either detectable by our senses, our bodily senses, or detectable and measurable by instruments we've created, only those can be considered real. So we're, in a sense, back in the sort of a flat earth universe. Uh, even earlier, we believed that uh, the earth was flat and that uh, if you reached the edge of it, you'd sort of fall off into oblivion. And we know, of course, that's not true because there's an additional dimension involved. We call it the third dimension. And by analogy, what we're looking at now is the possibility that there are additional dimensions and that these dimensions are inhabited by what we call consciousness. Now, the materialist view of consciousness is simply that it's nothing but the mechanistic operation of our brains and that there really is no such thing as consciousness. Consciousness is an illusion. It's labeled an epiphenomenon. It's a fancy word for illusion. And as to who or what is experiencing the illusion, that's also an illusion. So basically, we're not real. Our sense of self is not real, according to the materialist paradigm. But if you turn things around and look at them the other way, if you look at consciousness as fundamental, then a lot of these things fall into place as being perfectly rational, perfectly obvious, and uh, perfectly capable of being investigated. Now, uh... I've heard you say that there's one view that we are all technically on the other side, just <laughs> looking through our eyes and perceiving the world. Well, yeah, I do presentations with my film to live audiences. And, and one of the things I say is, you know, death's nothing to worry about. We're already dead. And I say that tongue in cheek. But the point there is that if there were no afterlife, we wouldn't be conscious at all. The idea being that our consciousness itself is essentially on the other side, that our bodies are, you might say, kind of spacesuits that allow us to live and move and have our being in the material world, that we make a purposeful excursion into this limited reality to have certain experiences. And then when this cycle is complete, we pull ourselves back into what we call the afterlife or the greater reality. It's a very general model of things, but it seems to hold true. I think if one exposes oneself to the literature, to the lore of the field, to the, the uh, films that have been produced in recent years, not just mine, but others having to do uh, largely with the near-death experience, which is a very fertile field of inquiry these days, I think one comes away at least with the willingness to accept something like this new view. 
we'll each interpret it in our own way. Uh, we'll each have our own experience of it. But that's how life is. If someone from some other reality came and asked us, well, what's it like living on Earth? You can't put that in a nutshell. It depends on who you're asking. And it's the same looking the other way. From everything we've been able to gather, the afterlife is as rich and diverse an environment as the physical universe. It may operate by a different set of laws and principles, but um, it, as far as we can tell, has a very solid reality of its own. I'm still thinking about the materialists. I, I think the problem is that they do, if they do accept the evidence for the afterlife, that they would have to then face their own perception of death and reframe their paradigm of reality, which is typically very, very disturbing for people. That's true. Uh, we do perceive it differently. Uh, some have greater or lesser inklings about the existence of additional dimensions of reality. We all will interpret it and process it in our own way. Of course, as you've brought up, the more people who begin to accept this, the less death becomes uh, the kind of spooky horror that our society and our culture uh, leads us to believe it is. There's really no proof of that at all. It's just, it's just a cultural meme. Now, one thing that I think we have to acknowledge, and I certainly have had this experience myself, is that no matter how sophisticated we may be about the afterlife, when we experience a personal loss, it's still a loss. There's still grief involved, that we are, are separated from a loved one in terms of our physical connection with them. It doesn't mean they're gone in the absolute sense, but grief is grief. It's, it's as if someone's gone away to some foreign country and are not immediately accessible to us. So I think you have a personal story about a guy named Joe. Ah. Uh -huh. I'm wondering if you can share that with us. Okay. <laughs> That's a fun story. I've read in, in many books stories of what are called materializations, where someone who's passed away uh, appears in their fully physical form in the presence of a, of a relative, for example. And um, I didn't accept it or reject it. It was just lore to me until uh, one day, this is back in the 1960s, I had gone to visit a friend of mine. I'm, I lived in New York City at the time, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, John, lived uptown. And so one, one evening I went to visit him. And when I got there, a friend of his had arrived as well. It's an old army buddy of his named Joe. John and Joe and I spent a uh, half hour, maybe 45 minutes together. I remember Joe as this big guy with a very, very firm handshake, dark hair, mustache, impressive stature physically. John and Joe went off to dinner. I went home. Sometime later, I hear from John that he discovered that Joe had been dead for five years. He had run into Joe's wife and um, John said, oh, how's Joe doing? And his wife said, oh, well, didn't you know that Joe had died so many years ago? And John said, but wait a minute, I just saw him recently. And his wife said, you know, don't mess with me, John, please. I was there at his funeral and so on and so on. So this raises the question. I mean, I can't swear to anything I haven't experienced myself. I can't swear to the information that John gave me, but I can swear that Joe was there as real as any human presence. Did you get an inkling? Did you have any kind of sense 
that something was just different about that interaction? None whatsoever. I can't even wrap my head around that. It's easier to imagine some kind of vague, ghostly projection from the other side. But we really know so little about what happens at this interface of dimensions, if you will. We don't understand the power of consciousness to manifest things in the physical world. So we don't really know what's impossible. During the Skoll experiment, which is covered in my film, relatives of the experimenters were said to have manifested physically in the room. A number of people have testified to this. These are not the only examples of this. The physical manifestations are part of the afterlife lore going back many years. You're right. Most people report seeing apparitions or something shimmering in the corner, but nothing usually solid. Well, again, it, it sounds incredible, but we don't know how often this takes place. It's rare in the, even in the literature, but we just don't know. And this is where science should be front and center and really stepping up to the plate and conducting proper surveys and asking all the right questions to really find out what's what and maybe shifting our sense of reality in a way that's more real. Right. Well, however you want to define the word real. <laughs> well, I, I'm working on a book right now, and one of the things I'm tackling is the definition of reality. And uh, basically, I'm saying it's impossible to arrive at an absolute definition of reality. But I'm proposing a working definition, and that is anything that can give rise to consequences. And, and when you open things up like that, I think it gives us permission to think along very different lines than we usually do. Because we tend to define reality a priori. We tend to presuppose reality. But if we're trying to explore the extent of reality, we can't box it in like that. And that, to me, again, is the difference between religion and science. Religion would presuppose a certain structure to reality. Science is open-ended. It has to ask outrageous questions, and it has to pursue those questions and find out whether they're valid or not. So I have a great deal of faith in science, ultimately, to move us in this direction of a new consensus reality. I think the process is just beginning now. This is going to take a while to evolve. But to me, and from my perspective, uh, the trajectory is unmistakable. We can't go back. So who's been your biggest influence in this field? Do you have a favorite researcher or author? At this point in time, I have to say my top favorites are two remarkable mediums. Their names are Jean Love and Regina Ochoa. I discovered them a few years ago when someone pointed me to a website called challengercc.org. It's challenger with two small c's after it, .org. And this website posts transcripts of channelings that started back in 1986 of the astronauts that died in the Challenger space shuttle disaster. There's a huge amount of material that came through these two women at the time. It was all recorded, transcribed, and has been posted on this website. When I first read this a couple of years ago, I was blown away. I contacted the people who had put up the website, who I happen to know. They're uh, with the Foundation for Mind Being Research here in Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they put me in touch with these two women. 
We've been working together for the past two and a half years. And the current outcome of our work is a website, which is called cosmicvoices.network. That's cosmicvoices as one word, dot network. We just launched it a few weeks ago. And it includes dozens of channeled messages from individuals who many of us will recognize and some whom we won't. But I would point your listeners to that website to just immerse themselves in the information there and see what they come up with. It's less about the science than about acquiring a sense of what this greater reality is about. I won't say much more about it, except, again, to recommend that your listeners check this out. Cosmicvoices.network. I did take a look at it at your suggestion, and it's quite extraordinary. Uh, I like how you describe the greater reality in such an eloquent way, and it really helps to give us a broader perspective. I think it can. There are, there are many, many ways to approach this whole field of afterlife research and, and experience, and this is one of them, but it's the one that I happen to be closest to at this point in time, and that's one reason why I'm recommending it. There are others. There's uh, actually on the website, we have a resources page with a section on books and organizations and media and so on that people can go to to broaden their understanding. So uh, that's one reason why I recommend the site. But primarily, it's for the messages themselves, which I think give us an inside track on the experience of crossing over to the other side and how it relates to the state of our world, to people's relationship with their families as they pass over. Uh, and these are all aspects that are not strictly subject to scientific inquiry, but are very meaningful to us as human beings. And we've just started a Facebook page. You can go to our website and it will link through to the Facebook page. Now, you're also involved with New Dimensions Radio. Yes, uh, I've been involved with New Dimensions since 1973 when we started uh, in San Francisco. We're still on the air in over 40 stations around the United States, Canada, and Australia. We're on the web in the form of podcasts. Uh, people can go to newdimensions.org to get all the information on New Dimensions Radio. We have, we have been interviewing people who have been at the leading edge of just about everything for uh, over 40 years. And we continue to this day. It's a volunteer operation, put out uh, a new broadcast every week. And I invite your listeners to tune in sometime, newdimensions.org. And that will point you to the radio stations and to the podcasts. Well, you certainly offer a wealth of knowledge on the subject matter, and I'm so looking forward to your book. When do you think it might be published? Well, I would hope to have it published sometime next year. Uh, the first half of the book is pretty much written. and uh, It's mostly the scientific part that's been done. The second half will be more of, uh, I think, an excursion into, you know, what is the afterlife? What is it like? What does it mean? Uh, it's going to be partly speculative. But I'm zeroing in, I hope, on the right language and the right metaphors to be able to convey at least some of what I think I've learned about this larger dimension of reality. It's all in flux right now. I'm at the point where I'm just focusing in on how I want to craft the second half of the book. The tentative title and the probable final title is, What's This About an Afterlife? It's a great title. Thank you. Uh, I hope it stimulates curiosity. And if a dozen people read this book and say, 
hey, I never thought about it this way before. Or if it can ease uh, the transition of even one person, I'll feel that the book has done its job. Well, I can't wait to read it. Uh, lastly, because I love stories so much, do you have any other interesting stories? I don't know if anything can top the story of Joe, but I know you talked about missing things because I think that's something that people are curious about as well. Well, when things appear and disappear, that's another aspect of demonstrating that our material reality is relative. Some years ago, I'd written a silly song, made a tape recording of it. This is when I lived back in New York years ago. I took the tape off the machine, put it on the table next to it, went to bed. In the morning I got up, the tape was gone. I looked high and low. I looked under the table, looked around the apartment, never found it. That tape was gone. No one else had the key to my apartment. Uh, the tape was gone. Years later, after I'd moved to California, I woke up one morning and found draped over my office chair, a red Tibetan neck cord. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a um, red string that Tibetan lamas and students wear around their necks. I have no idea where this came from, but there it was. Again, no one had access to my apartment. This is just something that appeared out of nowhere. I still have it. It's one of my keepsakes. <laughs> I can't explain it, but you know, these are, are little hints to us that, again, that our material reality is only relative. It's not the whole picture. And again, we have no idea how often this happens. It could be a fairly common occurrence. A friend of mine years ago was moving from the San Francisco Bay Area up to Eugene, Oregon. And she had a, a huge, beautiful collection of crystals, including some very large ones, like foot and a half long crystals. And as she was packing up to move, one of these disappeared. She couldn't find it. She looked high and low, and it's not the kind of thing that you can lose easily, obviously. But when she walked into the door of her new apartment in Eugene, Oregon, there was the crystal on her dining room table. Now, again, I wasn't there, but this was a, a person who, as far as I'm concerned, was trustworthy and had no reason to make up stories. So this falls into the category of, how do we know this doesn't happen all the time? Now, I can't answer it, but it's one of the questions that science should be asking. Definitely. Wow, I have a lot to think about here. You know, you have a great way of explaining things that are difficult to explain. And, you know, language can be tricky, but you have a wonderful way with words. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's challenging, but it's also fun coming up with best way to communicate these things. And I thank you for appreciating it. And um, hopefully my book will reflect that in a good way. Well, please come back when your book is published, and I'd love to talk to you about it. And I would love to come back at that time. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you very much, Tanya. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Dan Drayson. For more on Dan and to watch Calling Earth, go to newscience2020.com. The advisor for the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. To share your comments and questions, head on over to lifecontinuing.com. And make sure you join me next time to continue this conversation about life 
continuing.